and welcome to the Iran Podcast. I'm Negar Mortazavi in Washington, D.C. In this episode, we talk about Iran's nuclear ambitions, and we look at the history of continuity in the country's nuclear program, before the 1979 revolution, during the Shah era, and after the revolution under the Islamic Republic. My guest today is Sina Azodi, a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council and a visiting scholar at George Washington University, joining me from Washington, D.C. Sina, welcome to the Iran Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, Let's start from today, the current state of Iran's nuclear program. It's one of the top headlines and world news is something the U.S., Europe, and frankly, the whole world cares very much about. Explain the current state of Iran's nuclear program and basically Iran's nuclear ambitions, because there's a lot of disagreement in the world and how... It's perceived well. Uh, to start with the uh, the current status of the uh, the nuclear program, we have to uh, basically uh, flash back to uh, to 2018 when the Trump administration came in and it decided to uni- unilaterally withdraw from the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action or JCPOA, um, also known as the Iran Nuclear Deal. He decided for political reasons that he does not like the JCPOA and, as I said, you know, withdrew the U.S. Um, and it declared that it will reimpose the nuclear sanctions that were imposed on Iran under under the agreement. Um, Iranians waited for a year, uh, waiting basically for Europe, the the other members of um, JCPOA, to uh, respond and 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 implement their own ways to uh, basically reduce. Uh, the impact of sanctions on Iran. It did not happen. Uh, Europe, I believe, had the political will, but it not it uh, basically did not have the, the the ability or the power to counter uh, U.S. economic power and and and, and sanctions. So Iranians, starting from uh, last year, uh, 2019, started to uh, gradually, uh, step by step, uh, reducing their uh, commitments. Uh, and implementation of JCPOA. Now, it is important to say that, you know, Iran is still a party to the agreement, but they have declared that they are not technically abiding to their own commitments. And uh, right now, Iran has uh, 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 basically expanded its nuclear program. It has more, uh, in quantity-wise, it has more uh, low-enriched uranium. It has also decided to uh, introduce new and more advanced and more efficient uh, centrifuge machines uh, that can um, produce uh, enriched uranium more effectively and more efficiently. Now, what are Iran's ambitions? Well, it is is, uh, overall, it's hard to really explain the intentions of another state because uh, you're not in somebody else's head. But the evidence suggests, the historical evidence suggests that Iranians in in post-2003 abandoned their uh, quest for a nuclear program, uh, for a nuclear weapons uh, uh, program. And um, at the moment, it is widely believed that Iran is uh, uh, implementing or has engaged in in what is known as a nuclear hedging, which basically means that you acquire the technical 
uh, know-how of, of producing a nuclear arsenal, but you do not make the political decision to develop a nuclear weapon. Because as Iranians said, and I agree with this statement, that nuclear weapons will in the long term uh, harm Iran's uh, national security interests. Mm -hmm. And let's talk about, as you said, we can't... Um discuss what goes on in their head. But as far as the indications, what's important right now is that Iran is under a very intensive inspections regime. It's a member of the NPT, the JCPOA, the nuclear deal, as you explained, um, has a very rigorous way of monitoring Iran's nuclear program. Do you think a country who had weapons admissions would agree and abide by such um, intensive monitoring and inspection of its program? Well, it would be, uh, it would be extremely difficult uh, for uh, any country that is implementing uh, the most intrusive, and I'm quoting the former director of IAEA, uh, uh, it's extremely difficult to implement the most intrusive inspection regime and to be able to basically break out or, or secretly develop a nuclear weapon because Iran's nuclear program is, is being monitored 24-7. Iran is also under the JCPOA implementing the additional protocol. And under the JCPOA, Iran was also uh, supposed to ratify the additional protocol which is in uh, which is a, a basically a, a supplement to Iran's NPT commitments. Now, whether Iran uh, will uh, continue abiding by that, it is, we have to wait and see because the Iranian parliament, in response to the assassination of Mohsen Fakhrizadeh, the Iranian nuclear scientist, passed the legislation mandating the government to stop implementation of uh, additional protocol and to start uh, enriching uranium up to 20%. Mm. So uh, going back to your question, it would be extremely difficult for Iran or any other country for that matter to uh, go after a bomb when its nuclear activities is being constantly monitored by a, a very intrusive uh, inspection regime. Mm -hmm. So it's the political calculation in Tehran and also the practicality of going that route under the current situation. I'm glad you also brought up the assassination of Mohsen Fakhrizadeh. that he was called one of the fathers or the father of Iran's nuclear program. He was a very um, senior figure who was instrumental in setting up the structure of the program together. But how much do you think the assassination, his assassination, is going to impact Iran's nuclear programs moving forward and ambitions of the nuclear program? Um, uh, well, certainly it will have some um, impact because, uh, um, as, as you mentioned, he was very instrumental. He's even is often been com uh, compared uh, with uh, Robert Oppenheimer, the, the father of uh, uh, U.S. nuclear weapons program under uh, the Manhattan Project. But the thing is, Iran's uh, nuclear program has been so institutionalized uh, that removing one person uh, cannot really significantly uh, or fundamentally change Iran's ability to move forward with its nuclear program or change the nuclear calculations. Because you cannot take, you, I mean, you cannot surgi surgically remove the knowledge from an institution. The knowledge, as I said, is well institutionalized in Iran. Maybe if years ago uh, uh, Fakhrizadeh had been assassinated, yes, it would have a very significant impact, but not currently.
Mm-hmm. And let me also just make a note for some who may not know that Mohsen Fakhrizadeh was specifically mentioned. His name was mentioned by the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu back in 2018 as an important person in Iran's nuclear program. He even Netanyahu even um, said, remember that name, Mohsen Fakhrizadeh. Yes. Now, I yes. want to go back to, you mentioned the pre 2000 2003 era. I want to go back to that era and I want to hear your view of where Iran's nuclear program was back then or what was the ambition um, for the nuclear program or the direction that it was taking before that. Mm -hmm. Well, the evidence that I have looked at um, and the statements that, that I've seen from Iranian officials is that because the nuclear program of the Islamic Republic started in the midst of Iran-Iraq war at the time when Iraq was systematically using chemical weapons against Iranian troops and cities, uh, Iraq is also believed to have gone after uh, uh, acquiring dirty bombs and they even uh, uh, tested them. Uh, So it would make strategic sense for Iran to go after a nuclear deterrent um, because had Iran had a nuclear deterrent, Um, Iraq or any other country would not have uh, risked um, invading Iran. And um, and, and one example that I I do want to bring up uh, to give you a context of how Iranians viewed uh, the nuclear program is I'd like to uh, mention um, Ayatollah Hashimi Rafsanjani, uh, the former president of Iran, which uh, in 1980s was a speaker of Majlis. He said that it was was made clear to us that uh, international law on paper exists, but when it comes to sensitive moments uh, of conflict, it does not uh, uh, stop violation of of such laws. And therefore we must equip ourselves to both offensively and defensively to uh, chemical, biological, and and, and atomic weapons. So it does explain that Iranians uh, finding themselves extremely isolated in the aftermath of uh, the hostage crisis found themselves extremely isolated and 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 they thought that international law is not stopping Iraqis from uh, using chemical weapons and and the best solution would be to acquire a nuclear deterrent to stop Iraq or any other potential aggressor in the future. Mm-hmm. So how far were they able to go? And I just want to make a note that this is obviously disputed by Iran and it wasn't a very transparent program. Even in the international community, there are different ideas as far as how far the program went. But what do you know as far as that era of Iran's nuclear achievements? Well, reports by the IAEA and the nuclear archive that the Prime Minister of Israel revealed in 2018, they do show that Iran had experimented uh, or or had done the research on on developing warheads, but it had been in the the, uh, research and development stages, and Iran had not actually assembled a nuclear warhead. And we know that uh, Iran's uh, enrichment never went beyond uh, at least to my knowledge, never went be, uh, to the levels that are necessary for a nuclear weapon, which is 80%, 90% and, and that. So Iranians were certainly interested in, in having one, 
but never went to uh, as far as, you know, assembling a warhead and putting it on a delivery vehicle, which would be a ballistic missile in the case of Iran. So that's what we know uh, about Iran's uh, nuclear ambitions, uh, Islamic republics. Mm-hmm. And why did it stop around 2002 or 2003, as we know, by various reports? What was the calculation or what changed as far as the calculation in Tehran? Mm-hmm. I think it's a very interesting question. Um, I believe that Iranians at the time thought that uh, Iran, well, for sure, Iran could not uh, deter the United States with this very small uh, nuclear arsenal. And it was not even at that stage. It was not advanced enough to be able to deter the U.S. And and I believe the calculation was that our, if Iran continues on, 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 on this path, it could actually be used as a pretext for the United States uh, and the Bush administration to invade Iran. And you have to remember that uh, it's Iran's neighbor, Iraq, was invaded on the pretext of developing weapons of mass destruction. So I believe it was a rational decision to stop Iran's uh, quest for a, a potential n- nuclear deterrent. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to go back to the beginning of Iran's nuclear program or ambitions. We know it didn't uh, start with the Islamic Republic or after the 1979 revolution. It predates the revolution, and it was during the Shah's era. And I know you've written about this recently for the Atlantic Council. I encourage everyone to read your piece called A History of Continuity in Iran's Long Nuclear Program. This was just published. Um, last week. Um, let's talk about the beginning of the program, how, how it began, what were the Shah's ambitions, and who helped him set it up? Mm-hmm. Well, the Shah was uh, Iran's nuclear program, and, and this is widely accepted that initially when Iran started in 1950s, it was only merely uh, as a matter of research uh, and, and technology. And uh, uh, Shah did have in mind, uh, and he's uh, repeatedly said that Iran would need to eventually diversify its uh, uh, energy resources because he thought that uh, uh, oil is so important for Iran that it should Iran should not just uh, uh, burn oil to produce energy. And but uh, it really remained in the stages of uh, research and development before 19, uh, 1973, when Iran, uh, thanks to the Arab-Israeli war, uh, it, its oil revenue uh, increased massively. And and for the Shah, this was a great opportunity to expand the nuclear program. And again, the same uh, uh, logic that uh, the leaders of the Islamic Republic bring to diversify Iran's uh, resources. But at the same time, my research shows that uh, the, the possibility of acquiring a nuclear deterrent never left the Shah's mind. And in one case, for example, he said that it is silly for Iran to uh, produce some 50 small nuclear weapons to deter the Soviet Union. But his real concern was regional threats such as Iraq or smaller uh, countries that were aligned with the, uh, with the Eastern Bloc. Um, and, and again, I have to emphasize that uh, many people say that um, uh, this, goes only, this is only limited uh, to Islamic Republic. But when you look at the documents, you see that the Shah and his nuclear officials, including Dr. Etemad, who is the father of Iran's nuclear program, they really got into trouble in, in negotiating with American officials who 
said that Iran uh, should not have an indigenous uh, nuclear reprocessing. Mm -hmm. And the Shah and his officials said that this is what the U.S. is demanding from us is a violation of our national sovereignty. Mm -hmm. And you cannot dictate to us what we can do or we can't do inside our own country. And and you come to uh, Islamic Republic and you hear almost the same statements from them. Mm -hmm. So um, I believe that... um, Iran's ambitions, despite the regime change, uh, have largely largely remained intact because the factors that uh, push Iran's nuclear program haven't changed. Iran's security concerns have not changed. Iran's view of itself um, um, hasn't been changed. So, and I think these two factors uh, really are the main drivers behind Iran's nuclear program. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting you mentioned the United States. The United States actually was the country that helped the Shah to set up the nuclear program. But then um, simultaneously, they wanted him to have these um, this monitoring basically to make sure that it doesn't turn into a weapons program and remains a civilian one and it seems like there was um, disagreement uh, there too and the Shah even complained of an unfair international system but speaking of diversifying energy sources which you mentioned was something that the Shah considered Mm -hmm. and also the Islamic Republic very much um, publicly speaks of as one of the pillars of the nuclear program but we also hear a lot of um, opponents of, of of Iran's nuclear program saying Iran has so much oil, so much natural resources and gas. Why does Iran even need a nuclear program to diversify energy resources? What is the response to that, both under the Shah or the Islamic Republic? Well, it's interesting that um, I believe one of Iran's nuclear officials during the Shah had told his American uh, 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 interlocutors that, uh, and they had made the same argument that you have so much uh, other resources that you can use. And his response was basically that it is our own business and nobody else's what we we want to do with uh, our program. But um, it's not only just the um, energy resources that uh, that Iran is considering when it comes to the nuclear program. It's also the matter of uh, Iran, uh, and I briefly mentioned it, how Iran identifies itself. Iran, for Iranians, both during the Shah and Islamic Republic, this nuclear program is a symbol of Iran's modernization as a developing country that is proud of its, uh, uh, its, its history and its position uh, in, in, in civilization. So when Iranians say that we need this to diversify our, our energy resources, yes, it is true. But it's also a symbol. Iranians see this as a symbol of their own country, as a technologically advanced country. Because when you look at the uh, nuclear program and the, Shah, the Shah's logic, according to uh, Akbar Etemad, was that if Iran resolves the, the nuclear program or acquires an indigenous nuclear program, it has uh, resolved other issues uh, or has uh, acquired enough uh, technology in other fields too. And that's exactly what, uh, it's very ironic that Ayatollah Khamenei uh, has the same view. He even in once uh, in one of his speeches in 2006, I believe, he said that the nuclear industry is a mother of all technologies. So for them, uh, they view this as as a symbol 
of Iran's um, technological advancement as not a poor country or a backward country, but rather as an advanced country that needs to be uh, taken seriously, or uh, uh, Iran being as a member of the nuclear club. So there are many issues that uh, are involved in, in analyzing the nuclear program. Mm-hmm. And now moving back to today, where we are right now, as you explained, Donald Trump pulled out of the JCPOA. The Iranians still stayed in the deal, abided by it for a year. And then after that, they started slowly violating terms of the deal, but haven't really left it. And the violations are reversible within the JCPOA. And they've been asking the United States to return back to the JCPOA. And now we hear of the incoming Biden administration or Joe Biden himself, in fact, has said multiple times that his intent is to return back to the JCPOA and then continue further negotiations with Iran, which is something that the Europeans are also interested in doing Mm -hmm. and more deals to achieve. How far do you think think negotiations with Iran can go because critics of the JCPOA continuously said that this was a bad deal, this was not enough, and more concessions should have been uh, made or Iran should have been forced to make more concessions. How far do you think the Iranians are willing to concede when it comes to their nuclear program? Well, for the critics of JCPOA, uh, nothing is enough. Um, any agreement that is achieved, there will be some critics saying that, no, this is not enough for us. Uh, but it's really the matter of uh, how Iranians and Americans are willing to uh, concede. Look, any agreement should and must involve uh, 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 reciprocal concessions. Any side that comes in and issues a demand and the other side uh, agrees would be uh, an an unconditional surrender, which I don't think Iranian would ever concede to such thing. Mm. Now, the issues that are uh, at stake now or the issues that are being brought up now is one, uh, the the limits of the JCPOA or the term limits that they say after uh, year 2030, Iran's uh, the limits on Iran's nuclear program will be lifted. Uh, But at the same time, they don't mention that under the JCPOA, Iran agreed to implement the additional protocol and it also agreed to ratify it, Mm -hmm. which would make Iran a permanent member of the additional protocol. The other uh, issue that uh, they uh, bring up is, uh, for example, Iran's missile program um, and uh, or Iran's regional activities. Look, um, I've actually written on Iran's uh, missile program. I do not think that Iranians would uh, agree to a, a dismantling of uh, the, the missile program. I have proposed before that maybe perhaps a moratorium on, on, on uh, missile testing or, or setting a cap on, on the range of Iran's uh, missiles could, uh, would be feasible. Uh, it would save uh, the Iranians' faces because they can say, uh, we've already uh, made the political decision ourselves not to enhance the range of our missiles. And we can, for a while, we can refrain from um, testing. But anything that would ask Iran to uh, give up the backbone of it, its, its defense strategy, it's not just feasible. Iran, no uh, Iranian politician would be able to sell this and I don't think the establishment would even agree to it. And I want to do. Uh, I want to refer to what Arakchi said and how, like, the history impacts um, uh, Iran's decision making on on both the nuclear and or the missile program. 
that uh, he recently, I think, I, I believe it was in 2017 or 18, that uh, he said, we do not forget the chemical weapons. We do not forget the money that was given to Iraq. We do not forgive uh, the Mirage planes that the French gave to Iraq. And uh, he concludes that our missile program is for defensive purposes. So the the, the memory of the Iran-Iraq war and uh, the chemical weapons and the international uh, community's uh, negligence of, of Iraq's use of chemical weapons still haunts Iranian uh, policymakers. So it would be extremely difficult, close to impossible, to convince someone in Iran uh, to say, okay, we give up our, our missile program. No, it's not just feasible. So these are the critics that they say. Um, uh, but as I said, it's easy uh, to set and issue a, a demand for unconditional surrender uh, or really sitting down and achieving an agreement that is uh, uh, feasible for both sides. Mm-hmm. And um, you also wrote recently, and I agree with you, that time is of essence and time is essentially short between um, January 20th when the Biden administration comes to the White House here in Washington and the end of Hassan Rouhani's presidential term in Iran, which is in August. Iran is um, having its own presidential elections coming up in June. So there's really only a few short months for these two administrations to have an overlap. Um, I want to hear what you would say to the Biden administration when they come into power as far as prioritizing diplomacy with Iran and uh, return back to the JCPOA. Um, If I were to sit and and give advice uh, to President-elect Biden, I would say not to get distracted by issues that the opponents that of the JCPOA would bring up, because I believe that they would do anything in their power to torpedo negotiations or, or demand things that are not just sellable in Iran. Uh, again, um, I would tell him to focus on the negotiations, do not get distracted. And even if uh, you want to uh, negotiate re-entering the JCPOA, Keep in mind that time is of essence right now, uh, because once Rouhani leaves office in, I, I believe, in August of 2021, the next the next administration that would come uh, in Tehran will most likely be very uh, um, inflexible to negotiations and would be very much unwilling to concede to uh, U.S. demands. It is not that. Rouhani will be easy. No, but I think his team are uh, more uh, versed in international negotiations um, and uh, it would do a, a better job negotiating with Rouhani administration than waiting for the next administration to come in. And uh, it's interesting that Foreign Minister Zarif was uh, saying recently that there are some political forces in Iran that are sending signals to the Biden administration that do not negotiate with them and wait for us to come in power. Mm-hmm. This is extremely dangerous for both sides, I believe. Mm-hmm. 
And I agree with you that time is short and it would be much faster and easier if um, both sides make a mutual return to the JCPOA while the current administration is still in power in Iran, the same administration and the same negotiating team that basically agreed, made the uh, nuclear agreement possible. And as Mm -hmm. you also mentioned in your piece and you quoted um, Iranian-American scholar Mohammad Tabar, um, the Islamic Revolutionary Guards, the IRGC, is going to be in the driver's seat in Iran. And the hardliners Absolutely. have been, in fact, empowered um, by the maximum pressure campaign in Washington in the past uh, few years. Yes, and if, if I may add mm-hmm. something, this is actually the reminiscent of, of what happened in 2004, when the former president Khatami was in power and, and President Clinton was in power, there were steps that were made by both sides to basically uh, reconcile between the two countries. Bush came in, he destroyed, with, especially with his axis of evil and the threats of uh, invading Iran, he destroyed the reform movement. He, um, I believe he strongly undermined Khatami's position. And what happened? In, in 2004, we had the parliamentarian elections in Iran. The hardliners took over. And the next year, uh, Khatami had to leave office and President Ahmadinejad came in. And we had more, uh, more and more years of, of confrontation and tension between the two countries. Now, if history is a lesson for the future, my concern is that uh, at the moment, the parliament is taken over by hardliners opposed to negotiations. And, and my concern, as I said, is that the next president who comes in uh, in power uh, in, in, in Iran will be a, a hardliner, uh, especially uh, with the IRGC uh, background, who will be opposed to uh, any engagement with the United States. Mm-hmm. And the difference, it's um, I agree with the comparison that you're making, but the main difference is that there was no deal or JCPOA to go back to at the end of the Khatami era and the beginning of Ahmadinejad. But right now, Biden has these very few short months to set the foundation for diplomacy before the moderates leave office in Iran. And finally, I know, Sina, you have um, some personal story on why you have pursued or decided to study Iran's nuclear program. What was your ambition in in following Mm -hmm. Iran's nuclear ambitions? Well, uh, my father was a nuclear scientist. I was uh, naturally, I became interested, but uh, I didn't like uh, mathematics or physics. And uh, frankly, I was not good at um, either. So, uh, and, but at the same time, I was really interested in history, uh, international politics. So I decided instead of looking at, looking at the nuclear program from a scientific side, um, I, I decided to look at the nu- Iran's nuclear program uh, from a policy perspective. And, and um, even as an undergraduate student, uh, I, was, uh, I was doing my research on the Iran's nuclear program more in grad school, and now I'm still continuing, I'm doing my dissertation on it. It's, it's, it's really fascinating how uh, Iran's nuclear program ha- uh, you know, started, it, it, it paused, and then started again for the same reasons uh, uh, before. I want to, again, encourage everyone to read your most recent piece published by the Atlantic Council. It was titled, A History of Continuity in Iran's Long Nuclear Program, in which 
you argue that Iran's interest in uh, in a nuclear program predates the 1979 revolution, and you draw comparisons between the Islamic Republic and the Shah era when it comes to the nuclear program. Um, Sina, I want to thank you for joining the Iran podcast. Uh, thank you for having me. It was indeed a pleasure. Thank you. That was Sina Azodi, a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council and a visiting scholar at George Washington University, joining me from Washington, D.C. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Iran podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your podcast apps and follow on Twitter at Iran podcast. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.